0: Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and culture. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined by James Pogue, who is a writer for Harper's magazine. But he's just written a piece in Vanity Fair, which is titled Inside the New Right, Where Peter Thiel is Placing His Biggest Bets. And it's a very, very interesting piece that has been a bit of a smash hit, I think it's fair to say. And it's, I think, possibly, my theory as to the reason why it's been gone down so well, is that you look in an open-minded way, James, at a phenomenon that a lot of people normally just either scream at or embrace a bit too eagerly. So I think it's a, a great piece of journalism and well done. And I think for our British system, mostly British listeners to this podcast, we believe, we would like you to sort of start by explaining what is the new right, as you understand it.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you for that really nice introduction. And I wish that I could explain the new right in less than 9,000 words, which I tried to do in the piece. The easiest way for people who have never heard of it at all, is to understand it as kind of two separate converging trends. And I think one of those trends is more visible and that is a push amongst, or sort of on the electoral right in America to push the Republican party in the direction of something that would be sort of like a nationalist, one of these new nationalist European parties, sort of a Marine Le Pen kind of thing. Under that though, and shaping it, is an ecosystem that I personally find much more compelling and interesting that is fundamentally, fundamentally a critique of liberal narratives of progress Which is not exclusive to the right, and which, you know, can extend anywhere from sort of ecological critiques of the way that technology and capitalism are reshaping human life and like reshaping how we interact with the natural world, all the way up to very sort of techie critiques that have influenced people like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, who view our state system as not functioning very well, and who view the problems of the sort of modern life as too complex for the kind of liberal democracy and the capitalism that we have to solve. And a lot of that critique is very compelling because, frankly, like whether you're interested in climate change, healthcare, the simple like decline of like the quality of our roads and subways and infrastructure in America, our government doesn't seem to be able to answer those questions. It doesn't seem to be able to govern anymore. And the right is headed generally in a very authoritarian direction. Sometimes, you know, people are saying that's because, you know, they're obsessed with Trump and just love dictators and their love authority. But it's also partly because of this critique that says, like, hey, we actually can't govern right now. And we need new thoughts and new ideas about how to do that.
0: Mm. Well, let's talk about Peter Thiel a bit, because he is obviously a billionaire, a philanthropist, he funds a lot of the intellectual energy, let's say, on, on the right. And when I first became aware of him, he seemed to be a sort of tech libertarian. I think when I first read a piece about him, he was funding seasteading. Do you know about that? That's you know The sort of projects to build cities in the sea. And then during the course of the Trump era, he became, probably Trump is perhaps the wrong way of putting it, but he certainly got very involved in national conservatism as a result of that and he became moved away from the libertarian movement i think and in fact part of the the thing that drives this new right you're talking about i think is that they actually don't like even despise libertarians am i right
1: yes i think that's true they don't despise libertarians of the kind of traditional american bent of like keep government out of human life i think they i think they're broadly in favor of that i think what they truly truly are interested in and which is new for the American right is an idea that unfettered capitalism is not working and is actually not encouraging human freedom and human liberty, right? And so you'll hear a lot of people talking about, well, at a certain point, once corporations grow to a certain size, they are governments. They are they are massive peristatal forces that are controlling our lives and they are limiting human freedom and flourishing in the same way that a state could, right? And that, to me, you know, I've covered the right for my entire adult life, and that was just a very new thing to start hearing uh, that didn't exist a few years ago and as regards teal specifically, you know, people often try to characterize him, you know, so they're sort of like, well, it's such a contradiction that Peter teal is the libertarian is funding this nationalist stuff, but it's not really a contradiction. Teal is not. He, he doesn't have a coherent ideology and I don't say that even as a criticism. He's a guy who's interested in stuff and who has been sort of, he has been following currents on the right and trying to figure out ways to encourage the stuff that he likes, which is basically, you know, he would probably say human freedom, the ability of, of a single human to pursue their intellectual goals and politics in a way that is supported and free that, you know, like, like governments... Governments in the United States are often viewed as a sort of like evil, you know, kind of crushing force, right? And Thiel very much like believed that. And now I think he believes that the state needs to encourage people to be able to pursue their like freedom and, and capitalist ideas and ideas that could, could lead to new projects and new technologies. And I think he feels that corporations and tech are actually hampering that now.
0: The figure that's probably probably the sort of star of the piece, if you like, is not Teal, although he's the, the money behind everything. It's uh, Curtis Yarvin, who is somebody who seems to grip people's imaginations. He's charismatic, he's got long hair, and he says lots of very extraordinary things. Is he the intellectual force of this movement?
1: I don't know that I would say there is one intellectual force of this movement, but if you were to name one, he would be it. And I think the thing about Curtis that's really compelling is, you know, Walter Kern, who is a novelist, uh, a well-known novelist here in the United States, and is sort of in this ferment, he said to me something that I think is really interesting. He said that the great power of Curtis's thought is actually in his analysis of the American left. He's essentially like a brilliant historian of the force of the American left. And I think that's broadly true. So Curtis has kind of figured out a way of describing the cultural power of liberalism and leftism and in this thing he calls the cathedral and so the cathedral is essentially, essentially a sort of decentralized organic force. I know this is all like very weird sounding but it's a decentralized organic force that kind of like takes The ideology of liberalism, and it spreads it out through the American media, through the American corporate class, through the American institutions of higher learning and things like that. And then it applies that worldview in a kind of restrictive, repressive way to people who would be opposed to, like, what they would call open borders, people who are nationalists, people who who resist the kind of, like, governing globalist ideology, right? And so... That is something that I think a lot of people like hear and really believe, because if you say like, hey, globalization hasn't actually worked out that well, or like, hey, like the iPhone really sucks, you feel, and I think this is probably true in Britain, you feel kind of like you're hokey. You feel kind of like something, you're saying something that's quaint and, and passe and you feel mocked and the media doesn't take you seriously. And Curtis actually like applied a name and called this a system and conservatives in particular, really, really identify with that. The thing about it though, is that like leftists will identify with it because, you know, when Bernie ran and said, Hey, we should organize society based on shared common values rather than, you know, a certain number of GDP growth and the freedom of tech oligarchs to do whatever they want. People looked at that and said, hey, we can't do that. That's bad. And, you know, I, coming from the left, would tend to argue that that's the cathedral at work as well. But Curtis, you know, he talks really fast. He thinks really fast. He has really, really outre ideas. He talks about, you know, racial intelligence differences and stuff. And in a certain way, that has kept him on the margins of intellectual life in America. But it also helped him to grow because it helped people think, okay, this guy is really going there. This guy's really, really going to wherever his intellect takes him. And quietly over the course of, you know, at this point, decades, people began to really, really get into him. And the American media, honestly, until me, and I don't say that like, oh, I'm so special. It just happened that this was the moment where I could do it. But the American media just sort of never took his influence seriously so then when I got to describe it, it kind of blew people's minds.
0: Well, I take that point. Although I would say, I mean, as you say in the piece, Tucker Carlson had him on his show. But do you think perhaps people just dismiss that as right wing and and crazy because it's because it's Fox News or something as facile as that?
1: Certainly, that is true. I mean, certainly, like, you know, we exist in such a bubble that Curtis could go on Tucker's show. And I think, you know, people wouldn't even necessarily notice that the other thing though is that tucker didn't have him on the tv show he had him on a you know he had him on a streaming broadcast you had to go find it he still didn't quite go there right but you will notice if you watch fox news now that both tucker and laura ingram use the term regime a lot which is new which is something that jd vance and blake masters now use and it's a way of identifying similar to the cathedral it's a way of identifying hey the system that governs the united states is like in the soviet union it is a regime it is a it is a functioning governing system of control and a lot of people in the united states like that seems weird that seems weird to say because it's like no this is just the best way of organizing a society how else would we do it but of course any empire has a regime and These guys, I think part of why they're compelling is that they're identifying those systems of power and they're critiquing them, but they're also just showing people that they exist.
0: Tell me a little bit more about Curtis, though, because I think it's very hard to understand the phenomenon he represents, if you haven't heard of it before. In the piece, you talk a bit about his girlfriend, who I think is a sort of... What's what's his girlfriend do?
1: So she was like a left-wing sex blogger in San Francisco. So for people who haven't seen or dealt with Curtis ever, you know, he's a... Not a physically imposing person. He speaks very, very quickly. He has a pretty nasal voice. You wouldn't necessarily look at him and think he was cool. And so it's ironic Mm -hmm. that he's become as cool as he is. So he and Lydia, his new girlfriend, or, well, now fiance, they were both bloggers in this era where you could kind of say anything on the internet. And you could kind of have, you had a lot of freedom on the internet. And both of them separately, from separate political directions, felt the systems kind of closing in around them and like for probably you and me i i didn't notice that i just thought oh here's google now i can find stuff easier they felt the systems closing around them a lot faster than a lot of other people did and i think that's part of why they've come together but so lydia had been reading curtis as had many people in the bay who were online and sort of had been you know aware of him whether she hated him or loved him i'm not 100% sure, but during the 2020 George Floyd protests, you know, I mean, I'll get myself in trouble here, of course, but like there was just a lot of bullshit in the way that those were covered and anyone, anyone could see that, right? You could be, you could be strongly in favor of them and think that policing in America is a horrible, crazy dystopian structure as I do, but you could also see people standing in front of burning buildings and saying, this is peaceful. Uh, yeah. And Lydia started to view that yeah. as a kind of cathedral-like process, essentially, and she started to really, really double down on ideas like Curtis's. And so then, Curtis, who had, you know, famously been married, and you know, he was kind of in this right-wing thing, like he's trying to do a traditional lifestyle, just as many people are these days, mm-hmm. and has has become cool, essentially. His wife died around that time. And he eventually posted a dating call, which if you were on the right, like in this kind of online right ecosystem, was a huge thing. I mean, people followed it obsessively people. And when I, when I started hanging out with Curtis, I mean, people would ask me like, Hey, Hey, so what's going on? Did he find a girlfriend? What's going on? And Lydia was one of the people responded. They had a zoom date and it worked out and they started dating, but it was kind of wild because I for whatever reason, they chose me to be the person who reported it. And it was huge news in the online right here. Like, people really, really talked about it a lot. And I ignored some of that conversation because a lot of it was pretty nasty. But I know that that was happening.
0: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it is, there is a sort of left and right coming together of these underground movements, online movements, if you like, I mean, I'm sorry if this is a cringe way of putting it, but am I right in thinking that the kind of dirtbag left is involved in in this movement now, that these two things have come together? slightly The new right and the dirtbag left have come together?
1: Sort of. There's been a bit, I would say, of retrenchment in the dirtbag left where they've looked at this, and they've looked at the energy that is happening, the intellectual energy, the kind of ferment, with a kind of mix of deep despair and, you could say, jealousy. And, you know, coming from the left myself, I I tend to share some of that because, you know, in these left-right paradigms that frankly are not serving American politics very well, I think you sort of, you want to stick with your tribe as long as possible. And so, like, the certain, like, popular dirtbag left podcasters, like, have looked at this stuff and been like, this is a unique evil danger that we have to combat even more forcefully than we ever have then other people sort of like say never mind you know what maybe this is fine and then they're sort of liberated right like all of a sudden you can say stuff you could never say all of a sudden you can hang out with people you could never hang out with you're sort of freed from the strictures and and the and the languages of the left and like I've been personally very careful not to do that I've been personally very careful to maintain a position as a journalist and a curious person somewhere in the middle of all of this, which is why I've been able to report on it and why I've been able to talk to the left about it as well. And I will keep doing that. But there are other people, notably, you know, I talk about in the piece, notably the podcasters behind the podcast Red Scare, who've more or less gone over to that side, right? And so they started out as socialists, they started out as Bernie people and now they like you know they hang out with Alex Jones um they hang out with Curtis um and things like that and there we're probably going to see more of that and to some degree i think among younger people like the tribal differentiation between right and left is just breaking down and i think that some of the critiques particularly particularly around how the media works and also around what people in this world call state capacity like The simple inability that America has to govern and to do big things and to address the actual, like, literal, literal breakdown in our society and governance that is happening right now, neither left nor right, such as we used to understand them, has very good answers for that. And this ecosystem at least has analyses that seem to point towards some kind of future. That future may take a catastrophe to get us there, though. So that's the danger. (laughs)
0: Let's talk about J.D. Vance, because he seems to be the candidate that these people are really getting behind now. And it's been interesting to watch his journey, because J.D. Vance wrote this book, Hillbilly Elegy, which became a sort of classic when people trying to understand what Trump was, what Trumpism was all about. And then he's emerged as a political candidate. He's trying to get into the Senate in Ohio. And he... Had a bit of a sort of dip, I think, last year, where you know Trump people distrusted him, and then people who had liked him thought he was a crazy Trump person. But suddenly, he seems to have emerged as the the face of this movement you're talking about, and he's someone who you talk to for the piece. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with him.
1: So JD, JD is really interesting in the sense that, as we talked about earlier, he kind of embodies the two trends on the new right, right? Where like there's a version of him that is, you know, potentially, we could look, you know, extrapolate 10 years from now, he could be sort of an American Marie Le Pen or something. But he's also, I mean, he's friends with Curtis. He's someone who is very much like aware of and in tune with the kind of more online, right? And with the the deeper critiques of what's going on here, right? And the thing that I think has made JD into the kind of figure who does encapsulate a lot of this is the fact that he is from a place that is affected by globalization so much and he has leveraged the critique of the online right to push back against that right so he would tend to argue as a lot of people in this world would this is not by any means unique to jd vance but he would tend to argue that sort of like you know mass immigration deindustrialization, globalization, and also sort of the trends, the cultural trends exhibited by American media are all sort of targeted at repressing people from places like Southern Ohio, where, you know, there was this middle class American values, Christian family, you know, and you could go to the factory and get a job and, and, you know, live out your life. That has largely disappeared. And J.D. Vance views that as a sort of war by the American elite regime against what he will frequently say, describe as his people. And that gets to this kind of other thing that he's doing that a lot of people find very dangerous, where he will talk in language that feels very much like a sort of ethnic identification. Like he's, it feels very much like he's sort of bringing in, hey, the white people who are you know, getting screwed by all this. We're gonna finally stand up. So there's an element of him hinting at that, that that really, really, really freaks people out. But of course, that also has helped his candidacy. And now Trump has endorsed him. Uh, he had a huge boost in the polls. And, you know, after, after a while of this campaign, looking like it was kind of a shambolic, weird experiment backed by Peter Thiel that wasn't gonna work, it now looks like it may work. And that is going to be very interesting.
0: Well, it's interesting with what you say about that kind of identifying with the white working class and that that makes people quite nervous. Uh, because with Trump, of course, he was, you know, while he was always called uh, racist, and of course he had Steve Bannon involved, and so there was a sort of nationalist agenda there, he was always very keen and actually quite good, if you're objective about it, at cultivating minority votes. I mean, if you look at the twenty 2020- twenty election, look at Florida, he was successful in cultivating the Hispanic vote. So he was more of a liberal in a, in a sense than J.D. Vance was. I mean, it's, would you say that the Trump's more liberal than these people?
1: Oh, by far. and And in a deep, deep sense of the word liberalism. Like, like one thing that I think a lot of people actually miss about this new right is that many of the people involved in it are not opposed to liberalism such as you know you see in electoral american politics they're opposed to liberalism as an idea that shapes human life they are opposed to the idea that individual liberal values should be how we organize you know our families our communities our nations and so you will hear critiques and you know I can imagine that JD somewhere in this would share these critiques where you'll even hear people criticize, you know, American gun policy as too liberal, not in the sense that, you know, we have too many guns, but in the sense that like... The individual right to own a gun was not the point. The point should be like a collective militia. I mean, we're talking like a real critique of whether or not like liberal society is as viewed by The Economist magazine or something uh, should be allowed to stand.
0: But then it's quite new in American life in the sense that quite a large part of it is monarchist. And I know there have been monarchist movements in America before, but I don't think they've ever had this sort of momentum behind them. I mean, I think it's, it's, just, it's just very contrary, coming from Britain. To me, it seems very contrary to what America is about, to have a, an American movement that's flirting with monarchical ideas.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are people, and I don't want I mean, I to necessarily characterize any of the major figures as saying this, but there are a lot of people in this movement who kind of think that America is a spent force. And that, you know, our our experiment in democracy just, you know, it was good for a while and now it doesn't work. Curtis, I would say, being the primary American monarchist at this point, Curtis would have a much more nuanced view. And Curtis views the United States as having essentially had a series of regimes, all under the same name. The you know, the first the first being a sort of like shambolic initial constitutional structure that we had. And then he views us essentially as having created a monarchy in all but name via Alexander Hamilton and creating like a sort of monarchical presidency more or less immediately. And then I forget when the next one was, but then he sort of views Lincoln as having done this again, and then Roosevelt having done it again. And the regime that I think Curtis would describe us living under now is a sort of like extremely degraded and non-functioning version of what Roosevelt created, we, you know, with this vast infrastructure of, you know, agencies and bureaucracies and things like that, that centralized for a brief time, centralized power under Roosevelt and gave him huge authority to do very big things at a time of great crisis. Now we have what he would say, you know, this like huge bloat and and degradation of that structure. And he's basically saying we need a new Roosevelt. Like that, if you were to ask him what his king looks like, his king is Roosevelt. And just a it, sort of funny thing here. But Curtis will often do this party trick where he will, where he will read uh, Roosevelt. I was, about,
0: I was about to interject there because when I met him, yeah. he did exactly that. And he went yeah. around the table and everybody had to say what they thought it was. Right. And it was right. FDR's yeah. inaugural. Yeah.
1: And everyone thinks it's Hitler. Right. And, and of course, yeah. it's, it's actually just Roosevelt. Yeah.
0: I think I said Kennedy, which was just completely wrong. Wow. <laughs> but that's just because I'm ignorant. So where do you think this movement goes then if it, if let's say Vance wins in Ohio and then becomes a credible presidential candidate and then Trump probably still runs himself and then you have Ron DeSantis. I mean, do they what do they do? Are they not that interested in in the kind of horse race element of it or do they actually have a sort of strategy for winning power? That's
1: a a very hard question to answer. I think there are a lot of different ideas about where this is going to go. And I think think pretty much everyone thinks that there needs to be something, you know, that what Curtis calls like a sort of constitutional revolution. I'm not on here saying that these people are calling for a coup. Some might be. some, Some openly are. But I'm not saying like Blake Masters, for example, who's running for Senate in Arizona, he still believes in the power of electoral politics. And he will say that and he will argue that even to people on the right. But... He also thinks that we need a, a sort of centralization of power and a reimagining of how power works. Curtis, and I'm not trying to out him here. This is just true. If you hear Curtis on some of these New Right podcasts, he will describe a coup in very clear detail. Like he will describe it. He will say, you know, there's going to be guys at the Fed. There are going to be guys. We are going to come to your house. And, you know, he always makes sure clear that this is going to be peaceful, but he says, you know, we are going to give you a check and retire you from government, and you're not going to be allowed to work in government anymore, and we're going to put our people in there. And I don't know what you call that, but a coup. And you will hear J.D. Vance, as I quoted in the piece, you will hear J.D. Vance describe us like slightly softer version of that. I mean, he is openly talking about it. He's not talking about it in his campaign events. He's not running on it. He's not getting votes for it. But when when he's talking to other people in this ecosystem,
0: he's talking in very similar terms to Curtis. So J.D. Vance would say when, you know, the next president on their side gets in, fire them all. But Curtis might say arrest them all. Would that be the difference? He's
1: not really saying arrest them. I mean, his, his big thing is retire them. And, you know, like, if, you were to, if we were to start delving into some of the criticisms of this, right, like, Curtis's vision is very rosy. He, you're, you're like, we're going to send guys to the Fed. We're going we're gonna to get rid of the generals that don't like us or whatever. I'm not sure he says that, but things like that. But then his big acronym that's famous is this thing RAGE, retire all government employees. And, you know, you're going to kind of clear out the federal bureaucracy. You're going to clear out what a lot of people call the administrative state. You know, the the sort of like his vision of it is that this is all going to happen very quickly and it's going to happen very painlessly. And you're going to you're just going to print a bunch of money. He says this print a bunch of money and, you know, pay them their retirement, pay them to get out of government and put, you know, this new reactionary regime in and and we're going to be good to go. I think, you know, reasonable people can wonder whether that would go down as easily as he thinks it would. Like, like that, to me, starts to be where it gets really weird and you really have to have these conversations. And to be honest, you know, I'd be curious to talk to him more about that. The trick, though, is that, like, part of why this is compelling right now, not just to people on the right, is that a lot of people really wonder what we are going to do. I mean, our, our Congress cannot do anything. Our president... You know, we have this we have this kind of concept of the imperial presidency, this idea that the president can do whatever he wants. It's accrued so much power. But on the evidence of the last few years, that doesn't seem to be true. And so the monarchical ideas, I think, have become really compelling just because, frankly, there aren't a lot of other answers. And that's not me endorsing it. It's just it's me saying that with some a bit of despair, actually.
0: Yes. Uh, lastly, I'd like to ask you about the alt-right, because that's something that's sort of globally famous, the the alt-right as a, as a movement, and how much do the alt-right and this new right you're describing overlap? And to what extent do you think this, this new right that you're talking about is a movement that thought in 2016 that they were going to get this coup, that this coup was going to happen, and that Steve Bannon might lead it or, or whatever, and that they were disappointed and that now they need to build up to another coup?
1: Right. The first answer is, nowadays, you seem... I mean, people use the term alt-right more or less just, like, purely as a pejorative these days. I don't really hear anybody saying, like, oh, yeah, I'm alt-right and being proud of it. And you'll often hear people in this sort of newer ecosystem kind of use alt-right as a shorthand for the racist right. So they'll say, we're we're right-wing, but we're not alt-right, you know? And what they mean is, we're not racist, essentially. But a lot of the kind of tropes and kind of racial politics and and just kind of like weird stuff that was going on with the alt-right, like persists at the fringes of this stuff. And you will hear it and you'll hear people sort of joking about it on podcasts. But it's, you know, largely become passe, at least to the people I'm talking to. As regards the Trump stuff... Yes, I think some people, sure. Like Peter Thiel, you know, was heavily involved in the Trump transition and tried to get people into the Trump team that would kind of, you know, as Bannon says, dismantle the administrative state. I think they started doubling down on ideas like Curtis's after they discovered how difficult it actually was to do what they were trying to do. I think a lot of people, you know, in terms of the cathedral, going back to that idea, I think a lot of people were shocked at how effectively the media sort of deployed against Trump. And again, I'm not saying that was a good or bad thing. It's just, it is very true that the the Trump team just spent its entire time fighting media wars, fighting political wars. And the stuff, you know, the sort of nationalist stuff, the sort of like dismantling the American, you know, military empire, the, the policies that generally get lumped under the America First heading. Like, basically nothing got done on any of those. And I think a lot of people looked at that as a product of the quote-unquote deep state, the cathedral, the media, and, the, and all of these forces of power that exerted themselves to prevent that from happening. And that's why I think people are looking now at going a lot harder.
0: Yes. One element you touched on in your in your piece is irony. And I thought, I did say lastly on the last question, but this, this is lastly, to what... Okay. Extent do you think irony defines this movement? Because I find, I mean, I've met a few of the characters you you talk about in the piece, and I find quite often it's hard to know how serious they're being, and you don't know whether they're using irony to cover up the fact that they don't want to say anything to get them in trouble, and then they can hide behind irony as a kind of shield. What, what do you think is going on there? Well, so
1: particularly like the thinkers, you know, and Curtis is the great example of this, where. I once heard him on the podcast Good Old Boys, which I highly recommend. If anybody's curious about this world, I highly recommend tuning in to Good Old Boys. And I heard them once, like, listening to Curtis making a joke about, about Hitler. Like, these guys who are very ironic guys and who have talked to Curtis before. And just, like, just sounding mystified. They didn't, one just said, like, there's so many layers of irony going on here that I really can't follow what you're saying. And that will happen a lot what's interesting though is that i also think that there's a huge amount of like really genuine earnesty that the irony is a kind of protective layer against because there is this thing of like kids who just really want to have families and values and feel like the contemporary liberalism has not allowed them to pursue that kind of lifestyle and like to some degree when you look at jd vance and blake masters their problems as candidates is that they're like really, really earnest, and they really, really think that people ought to listen to their ideas and take them seriously. And then you get into the realm of American politics, and that stops happening. And so there's this overlayer of like really, really intense earnesty and belief that you know we can do better as a country. And then on top of it, a protective layer of irony that says sort of like, "Hey, hey well, I'm I'm just saying that. I'm I'm not sure I think it." And I think if if you spend a little time around the ecosystem, you'll see how those two things interplay. But at first, it can be very, very, very
0: confusing. Well, James, we'll end it there. I think your dog is summoning you. So uh, thank you very much for coming on. And I hope you'll come on to Americano again. I loved it. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.